Better than Lego. Better than Lego. <laughs> Matthew Jones is in position for a long-range shot. He's with it now, Matthew Jones. Here goes the kick from Jones. Yeah, g'day, it's Matty Johns here, and uh, welcome to the podcast. Now for something different. We had great feedback last year on the podcast that Cooper Cronk and I were doing about rugby league, about tactics, a little bit of everything about the game. Well, it's back, people. So sit back and enjoy. I'll tell you what, Coops, what a day yesterday. Um, Anzac Day, you know, the rugby league do it so well, respectful. Uh, at the SCG with Blocker and a few of the guys, and, mate, it was something. Then Amy Park. Like the Amy Park one, Coops, with the lowering of the lights. Yeah. You, you played in one of those games. What, a couple of them. What was it like? Um, yeah, I think they do it well because the Melbourne Storm um, you have the uh, as the lights are going down, they set the atmosphere and it builds the the tension in the stadium. Whereas the SCG, you got the history. It's the home of rugby league for a long period mm. of time. And when you walk down that race and see men and women service ex services, you're holding grandkids' hands mm. and things like The atmosphere's already there. It's there. Whereas the Melbourne Storm do a really good at building up, building up. And I think it helps having the New Zealand Warriors because yes. there is a lot of support for the New Zealand team there. So once the anthems go, the lights are dimmed, it's a hell of a game because uh, you know half the crowd, to be fair, are supporting the Warriors against the Melbourne Storm. Well, when Pappenhausen was going for a kick last night, I was watching Sean Johnson. Yeah, and he was he doing was. that. And you're going, yeah. now, why would you do that? I said, I remember, remember the anthems and he... You're on your home deck and you think, this is this is going to be a big game for us. Next minute, the New Zealand National Anthem is louder than the Australian one. You think, mm. well, we're in it for a day here. And the Warriors sometimes, I know they haven't had a good history against the mm. Melbourne Storm, but Sean Johnson inspired the Warriors sometimes. Yeah. They pulled the pants down the Melbourne Storm. 2014, I remember he beat you guys. Yep. A little show and go. Yep. Uh, uh, Dragons, really good. Showed a lot of grit and determination, caused that upset. And I thought, mm, is it going to be a day of upsets? Melbourne Storm, 70 to 10. A uh, question. Watching, you know, I'm thinking about Josh last night. I know he, it was his decision to go to the ball. That was Josh Shadow Carr and yep. got good money. NRL, you've got to earn your money, not real long, it stands yep. for. That must have stung a little bit when he's watching Xavier Coates get four oh. and the way Nick Mooney played. Absolutely. Uh, Xavier Coates scored a hat-trick in eight minutes or something. Yeah. He was just on the end of some you know, good play. And, yeah, look, I've... I've left, obviously left the Melbourne Storm going the Roosters and the one thing I can sort of advise for Josh and you know, even Burton at the Panthers, right? You go from you know, winning competitions, being successful, playing in multiple finals, big games, to then you know, really scratching every week to get a victory. The one thing that sort of helped me in my transition is that um, I never watched a Melbourne Storm game the two years I played for the Roosters. Yeah, right. Because I just knew that they were going to be good. And I didn't want to look back in the mirror and think, oh, this could have been, this might be, or this particular. Even like the first, you know, I think it was eight or ten games at the Roosters in 2008, we weren't going so well. Mm, and I yes, still yep. didn't watch because I knew the Melbourne Storm were flying. And it's just once you make that decision, you've got to really look forward. You can't be looking back in the revision mirror because I think it can throw you off your trajectory. It can throw you yeah. off. You start thinking about, oh, imagine if I did this, or mm. maybe I could be playing in this game. But yeah. uh, I think for Josh and Matt Burton, you really need to knuckle down and look forward. Well, imagine how I felt. I went to Wigan and looked back and they won the <laughs> fucking grand final, right? That's not a surprise. That threw me That's off. That's a different a, topic. That threw me off a little bit. Uh, and you're right, you know, the Burton situation, feel for young Matt, you know, um, yeah, you know, he he he's watching that Penrith side and good what I think people don't understand, we're just talking about this before, was that 
those really top teams, they're not just teams, they're family. Mm. And I, I, when, I, when I left Newcastle, it actually, and, and went away, because we were so tight, Cooper, it didn't, it didn't hurt me. It actually caught, it was almost trauma to be, like, you felt like you were cast out yeah. from the family a little bit. Yeah. It's uh, tough. It is, it is. And it's probably one thing that uh, those clubs do well, is they not only make you feel welcome, they make your direct family, intimate family. Like, the amount of times my family from Brisbane would come down to the Melbourne Storm and felt like they were part of the community yep. is, is a big plus. You know, they do it really well. The Roosters have done it traditionally really well when it marked time there. So it's bigger than just the scoreboard. If you are a good club, you run deep, there's multiple layers to it, and it's not a surprise that these best teams are good mm. at everything, not just on the field performance. I don't think I've ever seen at, at that a creative lineup like the Melbourne Storm, the Spine, have such a uh, running thrust, how they can penetrate a defence. I can't really explain that second half because if you're sitting there from an analytical point of view, at 16-10 at half time, Mm. the Warriors made four errors in that first half. Three of them led directly to Melbourne Storm tries. Mm. Drop ball from Cozy, intercept, meanie try, um, and then the grubber kick that wasn't handled. There's the three tries from Melbourne Storm. They come out in the second half, they complete two sets, Melbourne Storm score 54 points, and the Munster-Pappenhausen-Hughes um, combination have nine try assists, but then Pappenhausen goes off the field, so he goes off, has a rest with 12 minutes to go. Munster goes a fullback, Brandon Smith to dummy half, Harry Grant to halfback. And they set up a try for Olam in the you know, last two minutes. It's exactly like as if Pappenhausen were there. Yeah. Smith engages the marker. Harry Grant, who doesn't play halves at all, goes to look to the outside, turns back in, and there's Munster just flying through between marker and a defender, and they set up Olam. So yeah. the ability for them to know their role, execute their role yeah. in all different scenarios, it is, it's, it's amazing. Let's talk about handling pressure, because I watched the 30 for 30 on Greg Norman the other night, yeah, I've seen that, yeah. it was it was sensational, and of course it's it's surrounding the, when he's um, six shots ahead and going into the final day of the U.S. Masters of '96. You know, a tournament that had you know eluded him so much, yeah. and you know it's well documented that he blows it, and you felt like you know just the series of of events, whereas at the end of that you know, second last day. And he's walking into the car park and the old English journalist smoking a pipe yeah. says, mate, even you couldn't stuff this up. And he yeah. said, I felt something just break inside me. Yeah. Then he found out that you know, they sent a plane to pick up his family. Yep. Come. Then he wakes up in the morning and the morning shows again. Well, the only question left with the Masters is Greg Norman, a large or an extra large for the green jacket. Yeah. And he said, it was like you could see, like you felt you were tightening yeah. for him. You're putting yourself in that situation. And Faldo said when he stood over the first... He said, I knew there was something wrong because he's triple gripping and standing yeah, over the ball. Yep, yep. That tightening, Cooper. Yep. And the the assassin approach of Faldo, mm. like that's the perfect storm because that's what Norman should have done. You know, yep. For example, if you get to a big game or the, you know, the fourth round of a Masters, you don't change your strategy. You don't all of a sudden start flying your family in a, in a private jet to come celebrate. <laughs> you worry about that afterwards. Get them on the express jet once you've... You know, yeah, picked up the trophy. So there's a lot of things to say that you know, in big moments you should stay super consistent. But 
on the other hand, like you also need to be a bit stoic. You need to be yeah. stubborn and strong. Yeah. Like just because someone says something like that yeah. should not throw you off. Break you. you shouldn't be that fragile. So yeah. uh, obviously, you know, a lot of history going around at the, the Augusta for Greg Norman, but yeah, yeah, it's it's hard to watch as a sports person that's sort of maybe experienced a couple of moments like that. You can just imagine the head noise going through his head. Two thousand, we played the grand final qualifier against the Roosters. Huge crowd at the stadium. And on, we're leading 16-0, 16-2, something like that at halftime. Tried to erase it from memory. <laughs> but honestly, Coops, I'm walking up the race at halftime. You know when you just got a side's measure? Yep. And I'm thinking to myself, honestly, we're going to win this by 30, 40 points. Joey says to Luke Rigginson, hey, Dickhead, what are you doing for uh, Mad Monday tomorrow? Which is probably bad karma, who knows? <laughs> it, doesn't, it probably doesn't help. Yeah. And then we walk into the sheds and we all sit there and we're buzzing and a member of the coaching staff goes, everyone sit down. <sighs> I tell you, we're that close. Look, if we were to lose this, I tell you how it'll happen. And literally, I remember looking around the room and a lot of our younger players, and like Greg Norman said, something just broke right. in the room. Yeah. And we go out there and within 15 minutes, we're behind. Time over again, what would you have done? to change that, like having known what the result was. Yeah. At half time, do you get up and say something yeah. or? You just go, uh, looking back in hindsight, I think everyone sort of sat there stunned. Everyone, it, it's something you can just feel, everything just changed in the room. Yeah. And the thing about you say is you, turn, you, you try to flick the switch back and mm. you say, hey boys, let's go out there. Our goal is to win this game by 40, 50 points. Mm. We can do this, get back to that aggressive frame of mind. But we went out there suddenly passive. You know, I think one of the things that the, the coaching staff were talking about is, you know, what we'll do is we'll get out there and we'll throw frivolous passes and try to play two sideways. Well, what happened? Joey goes bang, tries to do a cut, double cutout. Freddie picks him yeah, off from the intercept. That, yeah. that starts the bleed. Yeah. See, even um, you know, sometimes as a half, you can control the the mentality or the mindset of your team by your kicking game. Mm. And Ben Hunt did it extremely yeah, did. well yesterday against the Roosters. Mm. You go back and watch his first couple of kicks. Kicks early on tackle four, sends Tedesco back. Then his next one, Tedesco makes two tackles on a kick chase. It's tackled two in his own 20. Ben Hunt reefs the ball down the other end. So he's basically telling his other players, said, hey, we're in a dogfight today. Mm. Get on your bike, get down the other end and start yeah. playing some footy. So you can control the, the mentality of your team as a half three kicking game. All right, if we're comparing golf to rugby league, <clears throat> I, I think probably the closest thing you get to is... I think it is definitely is goal kicking. Yep. I've got great respect for goal kickers. I oftentimes think well, that meant to be that, had had that mental toughness with the game on the line, especially with a kick you're supposed to knock over. Like I look back at that 89 grand final and to send it to extra time, Mal's got a kick right next to the post. And I said to Mal once, I said, that's a kick that everyone just went, well, here we go with the extra time. Mal's got to kick it. I said, what did you think about it? He said, I didn't. I guess I just put it down, went back, kicked it. And yeah, talking about, I've heard Daryl Halligan talk about this. He said, and it, the 91 grand final qualifier, they're playing Penrith. And Daryl's the best kicker in the league. He's playing for North Sydney. And Penrith were going to win the comp. But North Sydney win that game if Daryl has a good day with yep, the boot. Yeah, he right. kicks one from five. Yep. He's missing them 30 metres straight in front. And Daryl said at that point, he realised the goal kicking wasn't about, wasn't about the football. It was just about the mind. And so he totally changed his strategy. He said he'd go down, the, go down to the park and he said he had a system. He'd had eight kicks, two kicks, 
two kicks, two kicks, two kicks near the sideline. And he said, I couldn't go home until I kicked eight in a row. And he said, when I got to that last kick and I've been at the field for an hour and a half, he said, that mirrored the pressure yep. of a semi-final. And the reward for Darrell is they're playing, they're, the grand final qualify against Parramatta seven years later in 1998. He's doing that, knocking those kicks over from the sideline. Mm. It's just a really good lesson. Like I think about, like, sorry, Coops, is like, again, like I give my brother plenty of stick and deservedly so. But um, if I was to say with Andrew, right, where does Andrew rank as far as best goal kickers? He'd be lucky to be in the top 100. However, as far as goal kickers under pressure with a game on the line, I'd have him top three. He just didn't miss them. And I said to him, what, what was it that went through your mind? And he was coached by Daryl. And he said, I used to forget about the posts. And he said, all Daryl used to say is just imagine, okay, three feet in front of you and just kick. Because if the ball comes off the boot, sweet, and you go that three metres is nice and straight, yep. you're going to get the kick. And he said, but the other thing was, he said, I just didn't care. Because he goes, the bottom line is the reason we'll probably take in the conversions because I set up a try. <laughs> and he was serious. Yeah. But that's an interesting part, right? Because... Um I go to my early career about kicking field goals. I wasn't a very good field goal kicker. I struggled. I missed. I get over the top of the ball and start being scared and terrified at the moment about missing. And I remember doing a little bit of reading and Michael Jordan, known as <clears throat> the ultimate clutch man in sport across the world. He, there's a quote where he said like he's missed 26 game winning shots. So, but he's made a couple. He's missed more mm. than he got, but he's known as a clutch you know, shooter in the game on the line. So to actually be clutch, you've got to be understand the art of losing. You've actually got to be okay with losing. Yep. So once you can get to that mindset, I think the replicating moments of pressure is the key also because I used to do some field goals where um, it's hard to replicate you know, mm. the 78th minute or whatever game on the line. So you used to get like guys to throw tackle pads at you when you're about to kick, make heaps of noise, turn the stereo right up, balls being thrown as you're trying to kick because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what's going on outside you. It's the three metres of contact for the ball to go between the mm. sticks. So you've got to be okay with missing, but you've got to replicate the extreme pressure at some stage. What about that when you're in like semis and big games and suddenly we need a point and you know, okay, on the one, you actually start to feel your heartbeat in your throat. You know, being able yeah. to control that. But uh, it's also, um, you know, repetition. I've mm. been here before. Mm. If there's a young kid that hasn't been there before, that's when the ball drop gets shaky. That's when your foot yeah. position is in the right spot. But you've got to rep that out. You've got to almost be prepared for every moment, expose yourself to it. Otherwise, you know, it becomes pretty intimidating. Talking a bit intimidating, Talakai <laughs> going pretty good. That left-hand side, you know, that size, power, his speed, but... You know, the thing I reckon makes is just that the subtleties. To have, to have size and power, okay, that's that's good, but it's the foot speed mm. and the late footwork. Yep. That's that's the thing that really um, enables him to take advantage of that size and power. If I was Morgan Harbour, I would have just got out of the road. Terrifying, yeah. you yeah. know. Um, what about this week? Broncos versus Sharks, Stags versus Talakai. That's yeah. a hell of a matchup. That's worth paying the admission mm. to go watch the game itself. But like for Talakai to, he looks like um, he's really strong up top. So if you go in high, mm. he's got the ability to fend and throw you off. But then, as you said, if you go low, he's got that little hip shift. Mm. 
and can keep momentum going. So there's no doubt that um, there's going to be a lot of teams trying to work out the best way to stop them. And through history, if there's a big guy you know that um, can break lines, yeah, it's definitely got to go legs as your first target. You've mm. just got to get one or two together and help the, get hope the ca- cavalry comes soon. That was your, that was your. The storm philosophy with Tamalolo, wasn't it? Yep. Actually, don't worry. Like he's a legs tackle, an old-fashioned <clears throat> legs tackle. The other part was too, um, Tamalolo. We sort of used to make him make 20, 30 tackles in the first twenty minutes. It was like, don't worry about anyone else. Let's just get his uh, fuel tank low, and f- anyone, particularly marker. So if Tamalolo was running one off the ruck, that marker, you are first contact to the legs, and everyone else just hold yeah, on. on. Uh, comparing people to uh, Talakai. Probably the only one I, I was thinking about, Mal Meninga, <coughs> Mal is prime. I remember Mal playing a game in 1990 against the Roosters and Mal scored five tries. He was just unstoppable. And, and, and when you think of Mal Meninga, you think, you think size and power. But like Talakai, where, where the subtle part of Talakai's game, the footwork and the foot speed, you know, enables him you know, to take advantage of that size and power. With Mal, Mal had beautiful hands yep. coops yeah, and yeah. it doesn't get credit for that you oftentimes see those backline moves you know it goes Stuart Daly long ball to Meninga and Mal just going up and then just feeding Beltroff his outside hip you know having that you know it's it's great to have size and power but you need to have that little bit of subtlety in your game yeah I never played against Mal so I'll ask you for some defensive tips on Mal how'd you go against him <laughs> what I did the day before I went to the church and prayed <laughs> how'd that work for you not yeah, very well not good the walls would have caved in if the you Lord was in. busy that day <laughs> he wasn't listening to me we'll be back shortly with Cooper and I Are you ready to get an inside look at crime from someone who has investigated some of Australia's worst crimes? It was like Aladdin's cave. The luminol found bloodied footprints and bloodied handprints on a wall. So it's just like a horror movie. Former homicide detective Gary Jubilant sits down with cops, crims, addicts, victims, small-time cheats and big-town lawyers as they tell their incredible stories. My house got raided. Next thing you know, I got bail refused. Next thing you know, I'm on a truck to Parkley Prison. Listen to I Catch Killers early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts today or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen, Jackson Hastings again. Jeez, it's another uh, upset win and you can see the different way how Brooks is climbing in confidence. Just want to talk about something like a really old-fashioned principle in rugby league. And I've said this before, Alan Bell was enormous for us at Newcastle. He's like this old... Old school rugby league coach who work, you know, with you behind the scenes. You must have Andrew and I must have put hundreds of hours into us. And I've still got all the old tapes, VHS tapes at home. Trisha keeps going. You want to throw these out? They don't actually work. They're just there, you know. But one of his philosophies was a play for the play, and what that meant is when you started a set of six, you know, have a clear picture of what the conclusion of the set is going to look like, and then. In the plays leading up, you do a play which feeds to that conclusion. And one of the, and, and the play for the play was this. If I'm going towards the defence line and I hit a player short, it pulls a play from that side of the defence line and you rip around the same way. Vice versa, if you want to go back in an opposition, you drop a player off. And that just silently shortens up a defence. He set up a try, Hastings, where he did two play for the play. Drops under shortens the line a little bit. Drops under again, shortens the line a little bit, then he rips back. Yep. And I just thought, 
you know, I thought it was just a really nice piece of old school principle. And we spoke about last week about Isaiah and Nathan Cleary. If you don't have the speed to beat defenders, then use the guile and deception. And that's exactly what he does. He steps up, doesn't get the look that he wants, so plays short, flips on the other side. I'm trying to create space for Brooks here. Ah, don't have it set it back up again. So he's forever thinking. He's just not playing the play because that's what mm. Maguire told him to do. He's reading the defensive movements and picking them apart. He's, is it, footy IQ is pretty intelligent. Like he's, yeah, he is. he's up there with you know, some of the best and he's um, created it for Brooks the last couple of weeks. Certainly has. It's like you know, the ally that Brooks always wanted and needed. Yeah. See the difference in the field goal, Coover. Yeah, so that for me was a real telling point. So... The game's in the balance with South and the Tigers, and um, it's a bit chaotic in different stages. And Jackson Hastings gets an opportunity where he sets the Tigers up to the perfect field position. And he knows that Luke Brooks is a left-footed kicker, so he works to the right side of the post. And if you watch the vision, Jackson Hastings moves the play to the right and points to the dummy half and says, look, Luke Brooks is your man, give him the ball. And they're in perfect position, and Luke Brooks nails it. On the flip side, South Sydney had an opportunity to do exactly the same thing. Uh, play down the left-hand side, Damien Cook goes to dummy half. All they needed to do was to drive one into the nearest post, and Lachlan Ilias, a right-footed kicker, has a shot. But the senior player, Cody Walker, watch him. He runs from that play the ball all the way to the left side of the field, runs all the way out to the right because he wants to have a shift and a try, gets a ball out there, then they pass it back to Ilias, Right side of footer, wrong yeah. side to play the ball. He gets spooked back into traffic, throws the gyro and gyro misses. Yeah. So the ability for Jackson Hastings to dominate and own that moment allows Luke Brooks to do it. But then Cody Walker probably should have dominated that moment then to set it up for mm. you know, young Elias to take the shot. That Jacob Little chase on, uh, yeah. like says everything. Like uh, you know, in rugby league, everything is underpinned by belief, and it just symbolises the belief in the football side, the belief that we can win this game. Because I wonder, three weeks earlier, does he do that chase? Does mm. he chase like that? Tigers, 43 from 44. Yeah, they mm. were so good. Mm. Like They played a good brand. They defended their goal line. They competed on every play. And you're exactly right, because all of a sudden, the sniff of success makes you more determined, you've got more desire, more effort areas, and you come up with those players. So um, it's interesting. The Tigers storyline for the first Six weeks is so interesting. That yeah. was so bad, then so good. And what does that mean next? And they got the Dragons. You know, yeah. two informed teams, if that's yeah, the way good. you want to call it. Yeah, the, the parallels between Hastings at Salford and now the Tigers, pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah. It, it, um, it's interesting. I'm looking forward to that game next week. It's, it's funny, Coops, watching. I've got a theory on things. I've got a theory on lots of things. I know. Uh, I know. Uh, yeah. Like, if you look at sides, right, one thing I tip my hat to you blokes at the Melbourne Storm is you never got took winning for granted. You never got tired of winning. I don't know. And what I mean by tired of winning is, you know, sometimes when you're winning all the time and you're just having success after success, you don't get the same buzz and euphoria. Mm. Right. But if you look at a side like the West Tigers, who have just been getting hit over the head for so long, suddenly they have a kill. Yep. Suddenly they have a second win. And you can just see the buzz yep. starting to happen in the camp. And a lot of people like get there after a win and they'll go, no, no, everyone just settle yeah. down, so keep a lid on it. I think the Tigers, you allow them yeah, to get so. up and I get used so to too. it. Yeah, mm. like bathe in it, you know, you yeah. know, just carry on a little bit in it. 
And because the interesting part for the Tigers is uh, the storyline will be if they fall back into some bad form. So I'm a little bit with you. Uh, football is always at the end of the day and they get judged on that. But they need to be walking on their toes, walking into yeah. a uh, training facility and you know, even have a little bit of fun, you know, really bask in the glory of what this feels like so you can bottle it up and release it again. If there's one positive that came out of, for the Tigers out of the Tales of Tiger Town, was the fact that it held a mirror up to them and really, I think, yeah. showed them had they lacked player leadership. Yep. And watching, you know, watching, I felt for Madge in those things because, and I remember at the same time with Anthony Subold at the Broncos, they cut to half time and all the players were sitting like that. And the coach, what does the coach do? The coach probably knows the players are sick of, sick of hearing his voice, but nobody else is talking. Mm-hmm. So you're the one having to step forward and, you know, and almost drive the players mad. But what do you do? You're the yeah, coach. The Tiger Town video is like a look in the mirror. They were forced mm. to you know, have direct feedback, whether it was from us in the media or just viewing it themselves. So um, for me, the thing about Jackson Hastings, you know, mirroring Salford to what he's doing at the Tigers is that it's a little bit different because at Salford, Jackson was the main man. He had to come up with the big plays in a lower tier club mm. to get them you know, through relegation, then to a final. But he's changed slightly. You hear his interviews after the game. He is pumping Brooksy up. He is. he is really giving him a lot of confidence. He's basically just saying, I'm here to create space for Brooks because I know he's got it. So he's actually understanding that, okay, I might not be able to come up with all these big plays that I need to, but I've got a guy here that's quite talented. Mm. He just hasn't been able to deliver consistently over a long period of time. So I'm going to take the head noise out of Luke's game and then let him and give him an extra second, second half to make a decision, and Mm. it's actually working. Okay, quick break, and we'll be back in a sec. I'm Andrew Rule, the host of the podcast A Life and Crimes. Here are some of the things that we've been talking about the last few weeks. The brutal truth is that when you start looking at it, they always kill or injure a lot more than each other. The professional hitman used to be a professional hitman. Evil strikes in all forms, but particularly as stupidity. Life and Crimes is available wherever you get your podcasts. Right, Coops, let's do a legendary <laughs> focus today. And this yep. one I love because, mate, he's one of my favourite players of all time, and Terry Lamb. Probably the greatest bulldog of them all, alongside blokes like you know, Steve Mortimer. But is that a, I'll state the obvious start with an amazing career. Debuted in 1980 with West, coached by Roy Masters. Um, I think he got uh, Rookie of the Year that that season, and straight away had a massive impact. The story I love about Roy tells a story that in 1980, and they had a pretty rough and ready side. The West boys, lots of characters, and they brought a dietitian in out of nowhere to say, uh, right, talk to the boys about what they should be eating, drinking through the week and day before the game, most importantly. And the dietitian said to Terry Lamb, what do you do the day before the game? And he said, I go to the Chester Hill pub and I have probably 20 vodka and oranges. <laughs> and she was horrified. And she went to Roy and said, do you know what he's doing? Anyway, so Roy went to Terry Lamb and said, mate, you go to the pub day before the game, you have 20 vodka and oranges? Yeah. He said, keep doing it. You're going, <laughs> you're going good. You're going good. That's the superstition part, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. And it's funny, like, to give our viewers a little bit of insight, when I worked with you in back in the early days, many, many moons ago, the VHS tape that you used to talk about, yeah. I remember you gave me one and there was, like, Langer 
Ricky Cliffy's goal and Terry Lamb was on there. And I remember watching it, fast forward, rewind, fast forward, rewind. Terry Lamb's support play is the best of any half Incredible. the game's ever seen. Yep. He had this knack of uh, preempting the play and essentially might go out to the left-hand side and Terry Lamb maneuvers in his one pass, draw the fullback and he scores on the post. But I do remember watching that from that VHS tape and thinking, all right, I'm going to bring that. I'm going to take a little bit of Terry Lamb's ability mm. to support. And I used to do it. Greg Inglis, throw the ball to hit Greg, yep. run down the middle Straight of the field. The and the back of that VHS tape, there was a couple of highlights of you about getting out of the road and tackling. And I didn't listen to it. didn't watch yeah, that yeah, part. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. took a lot I, out I was, of mate, Terry Lamb's. <laughs> I could see the smirk. I knew there was a little kick going there somewhere. <laughs> Terry Lamb, he went away in the Kangaroo Tour in 1986. He played in every game, Coops. And what was interesting about Bar was that he went on away in '90, and but he re, he said when he came back from '86, uh, not long before he'd left, um, uh, his wife and he had a child, a son, and when he got back because the tours back in those days were so long, he said that his son didn't recognise him, and that, at that point he <coughs> said, "I'm never going on another one." It was done, but to start in 1980, right, finished in the mid to late. 90s, yeah. but when I first came into first grade, was playing against him. Those years he played 93, 94, and 95 are arguably his finest years. I think so because you know he had guys like Jimmy Dimmick and all these young guys and uh, Jason Smith and what not around him. But he was the leader of the side. And Chris Anderson tells that talks about him and says, Maddie, his knees were shot. He couldn't train. They were bone on bone. Mm. But he had a ritual. We're talking about the Chester Hill yeah, pub thing. Yeah. He had a ritual, so he said. He couldn't train all week, but what he would do, the day before the game, he'd go for a 20-minute run. Right? And Chris Anderson Ope said to him, mate, the trainers, I said, what are you doing? It's counteractive. He goes, no, 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 that's what I do. That gets my mind right, ready to play. And the other part you talk about, you might have been you know, knees shot or whatever, some young guys coming through, but you talk about presence. Mm. You talk about the ability to manoeuvre yourself through a game and then create for other people. That, that's a big part of, or not spoken about, part of halves play mm. is the ability to, if you're not at your best, how do you manipulate the defence to create space for other players? And Terry Lamb obviously was that person towards the back end of his career. Mm. And the simple fact that he was shot, but going for that run himself to prepare, but then turn up on game day and just being there, yeah. allowed other guys to feel more comfortable and can yeah. fall in their rhythm, and that's why they had success. Great player. Yeah. Great player. That's all for today, letting people know. We usually record this about 11. This is 6.30 in the morning because <laughs> Cooper's got an appointment. Uh, and I know it's the, a continuation from him yeah, last night. <laughs> I, know, I know the tanning salon is a little bit away. <laughs> Good on you, Coops. Good on you, mate. Good luck. Don't stay in there too long. No, nah, easy. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the podcast with Cooper and I. Love working with Coop. Always gives me some great insights on the game. Uh, don't forget, people, John's Family Podcast coming out this Friday.